a quick warning before I jump in. I, I know we just did a culture alert two weeks ago, and it had been some time prior to that before we did one. But I just saw this article on Thursday, and it seems so timely and so on point with our theme of this particular sermon series in Colossians. I decided we're going to do another culture alert, alert, alert. This is it. Nearly 70% of born-again Christians say other religions can lead to heaven. And then this is the first line of the story. Nearly 70% of born-again Christians disagree with the biblical position that Jesus is the only way to God in a new survey from Probe Ministries. Um, Now, it would be easy to write this off as just, well, this is an example of cultural Christianity, right? As, As a Christian nation, lots of people say they're Christian and they don't really believe or don't know what that means. It would be easy to dismiss this um, to cultural Christianity. But part of this survey, Probe Ministries, asked some kind of defining questions uh, that people responded to. One of the questions was, have you ever made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life? And people said yes, part of this 70%. Um, they, they made this statement, I will, I will go to heaven because I've confessed my sins and accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And this group agreed with that statement. So this seems to kind of weed out the possibility of cultural Christianity. This is a group of people that had a fairly good understanding or should have a fairly good understanding of what we mean by Christianity, what it means to be a Christ follower. And yet... Almost 70% believe that Jesus is not the only way to God. And it becomes clear, it seems, that we've taken a lot for granted in our claims of being a Christian nation. Uh, it becomes clear that bad teaching has contributed to these answers. Uh, it's become clear that false teaching has taken root, um, and that perhaps that we are a Christian nation only in the sense that we've syncretized and blended Christian belief along with other belief systems, thereby convincing ourselves that other religions can lead to heaven. And if we're not really convinced, we just don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings by saying that that may not be the case. And interestingly, this is a similar situation to what Paul was facing in the first century. One of the primary reasons for his letters to, to his letters to, to the New Testament churches and his letter to the church in Colossae is what we've called the series, that's the supremacy of Christ. Why Christ is far above everything else that they would consider. So there's that depressing little culture alert. Let's pray before we jump into our text this week. <clears throat> Father, we're grateful for the chance to be here on this uh, very fallish autumnal morning. Um, and we're grateful for the chance, the, the freedom that we still have to gather to... to um, get together as the body of Christ uh, with primarily a shared belief system um, with uh, placing value on your word, placing value on the, the command to gather together. Um, and we're, we're grateful for the chance to spend time in your word. Lord, I, I pray that as we go through it, we, we hear um, what you intend us to hear. We hear what we need to hear individually. We hear what we need to hear collectively because there's so much bad information going around. Lord, I pray that for the leadership of this church, you continue to hold us fast to the truth. Um, For those of us who teach, you hold us faster to the truth um, and that we continue to lean on your understanding and not on ours. So be with us as we spend time in your word this morning. Um, Fill our hearts and, and minds with your wisdom and your knowledge. And we thank you again for this great gift together. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're into the second chapter of Colossians. We're going to start with a couple of verses here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now you'll notice this starts off with a therefore, and we all know at this point, if there's a therefore, we've got to figure out what that therefore is there for. So that forces us into just a quick review to get us up to the therefore. But we see that Paul's first emphasis here is on the believers in Colossae. You who have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So he's not talking to social Christians, if they had any during that day. His emphasis here is to the believers, those who have received Christ as Lord. Not Easter Christians or Christmas Christians, but these are, these are Christ followers. Um, Specifically, he says, those who've made Jesus Lord of their life. This is who this is addressed to. And remember, he's already made it early in this, this letter abundantly clear the Jesus that he's talking about. Uh, he, he, he removes all doubt when he gave us this kind of this list, this resume of the Jesus he's referring to. It's the one that delivered us from darkness to light. It's the one who redeems and forgives our sins. He says, Jesus, it, it, he's the image of God. He's the creator. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. In him, the fullness of God dwells. So he says, I'm writing this to those those Colossians, those Christians in Colossae, who have received this Jesus as Lord. The one in whom, he says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The one who, having been received by you as Lord, now dwells in you. The one who brings about a heart change and a lifestyle change. The Jesus that encourages your heart, that, that knits believers, the, the church body that knits us together in love, that gives us all the riches and the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in you. Because you've received Jesus as Lord, he dwells in you so that you can now walk in him. I mean, this just repeats what Paul has already said in his opening to the church. He, he Early on, his greeting was, I hear you're bearing fruit. I hear you're growing in spiritual wisdom. So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And Paul repeats this here. Walk in him. He dwells in you, so you walk in him. So he's, he's, this, this therefore is, is building on and expounding and um, encouraging the church to continue to walk in Christ. And he says, and you'll be rooted. You'll be built up. He uses two different analogies here to make the point. You'll be rooted like a tree. The, the, the deeper the roots are for the tree, the less likely it is to blow over in a storm. Even if it's a bomb cyclone, deep-rooted trees will stand firm. He says you'll be built up, and, and the word is, is, is the idea of construction, of, of building. The taller the building is going to be, the better your foundation needs to be for it to stand. So Paul is encouraging and extolling the virtue here of a deep, abiding, growing faith. He's not talking about cultural Christianity here. He's not talking about those of us who claim Jesus because we think that's our fire insurance. Jesus, who's a, a life accessory. You know, we, we look good to our neighbors and we maintain our social business contacts when we go to church. Paul's talking about this real deal, life-changing faith in Christ. And apparently one of the hallmarks or one of the telltale signs of an established life-changing faith is we abound in thanksgiving. 
I mean, can you imagine abounding, having an abundance of, incapable of not expressing gratitude just in general? Anybody live like that all the time? You're just happy all the time. You're just always grateful. Paul seems to suggest that that's kind of the sum total of a life of faith. He gives us kind of some spiritual math here. If you receive Jesus as Lord and you walk in obedience and you're rooted in faith and you're built up in Christ, you will have abundant thanksgiving. That's the outcome. That's the product of all of those things. When we receive Christ as Lord, when we walk in a, in a manner worthy, we live obediently. Our, our faith is deeply rooted in truth. Our faith is built on Christ and his truth. We abound in thanksgiving. So our natural response to salvation is thanksgiving. It's gratitude. And not just being grateful whenever we think about God's gift of grace to us. I mean, that's good. We should do that. But this seems to suggest an ongoing abundance of gratitude and thanksgiving. Abounding here means overflowing. Unable to contain it. Unable to hide our thankfulness, our gratitude. It's hard to overstate this, but abounding, overflowing gratitude seems to be a necessary byproduct of genuine faith. Anybody feel that a little bit? Thanksgiving, the the act of being grateful, it's a regular occurrence of faith. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word here for Thanksgiving is eucharista. And if you're at all familiar with the Catholic Church, you know that they refer to their communion as the Eucharist. Now, we would probably disagree with other aspects of the Roman Catholic understanding of communion, but we would be in agreement that remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Christ is an act of thanksgiving. We come to it with gratitude. And variations of that word, Eucharista, are translated in various places as rejoice or be glad. So if Christians who are rooted in faith and built up in truth are to be thankful and rejoicing even so that they can't contain it, it kind of begs the million-dollar question, how do we explain grumpy Christians? And I just don't mean just a believer having a bad day. We, we all have those. But those believers who seem to wear a, just a permanent frown, you probably all have one in mind right now. Let's just shout them out loud. Shout, no, it's not. It's not. <clears throat> those Eeyore Christians, those chicken little Christians, the woe is me, the sky is falling. According to Scripture, that is inconsistent with faith. Billy Graham once said, Christ could put a spring in your step and a thrill in your heart. Optimism and cheerfulness are products of knowing Christ. I say, then why do we all know Christians who seem to have a spring poking their seat and a chill in their heart? <laughs> we, all, we all know those people. So what, what gives? What's the rub? Well, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. There's no... See, I almost said vaccine, but that would just kind of throw the whole thing off. I'm not going to say that. There is no one-size-fits-all one-size-fits-all answer, but some of us have personalities that just gravitate towards pessimism. And we have to work a little harder. We have, we have to pray a lot more often, maybe, for the love of Christ to shine through us so we can catch the occasional glimpse of optimism. Just every now and again, that'd be good. 
And some of us just are worriers. We just worry too much. We stress too much over things that we cannot control, no matter how much we stress about them. So we're persistent. We're going to double down on our stress and worry some more. And we perhaps need to get better at trusting God to work completely in our circumstances. And some of us struggle not so much with worry, but with fear. We need to learn to allow faith to rule over fear. Because fear and stress and worry all inhibits or masks or puts limits on our joy. And sometimes it's just a matter of perspective. You know, we get caught up on our own, our own stuff and we spend energy, time and energy worrying about finances or about jobs or our business or relationships or a myriad of other things that we can stress out about, real-world concerns, rather than every now and again taking a step back and thinking, well, I have a house to be grateful for. It may not be the house of my dreams, but I've got a place to live. I, I, I've got somebody who loves me, maybe not all the time, but they love me a lot of the time. I mean, as followers of Christ, we have to remember that we are blessed. If we die broken and destitute in this life, we're still walking streets of gold in the next. Which is why among the fruit of the Spirit is joy. We've already been given so much more than we deserve, not as much, you know, as we think we deserve, but more than we truly deserve. We have the love of a father against whom we have sinned often and repeatedly. We have the inheritance from that Father who's going to give us much more than we ever deserve. We have the indwelling presence of God here and now. That's the source of joy and thanksgiving. The rest, just details we have to try to figure out or learn to live with or whatever here and now. How to live life in a manner worthy while we're here. And we learn to rely and trust and, and tap into the treasures of the knowledge and wisdom of God. That's where the answers lie. So gratitude, thanksgiving, is significant. It's critical to our faith. It's critical to our spiritual walk. We have to be rooted in. We have to be built up in, in, in Christ. And then live lives of gratitude in response. This is really significant. Paul builds on this argument. Notice where he goes next. He, he urges the believers to be rooted in Christ, grounded in faith, and full of gratitude, so that... No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the element, element, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So rooted, grounded, and grateful. Rooted, grounded, and grateful helps keep us free from all of the bad teachings floating around out there. When we find true joy and gratitude in Almighty God, then we're, we're content. The focus is not on us and our circumstances, but we find joy in the Lord. And then we're much less susceptible to the philosophies and, and other teachings of men and, and human traditions, as Paul refers to them. He, he, he's teaching that all of these other things are focused on us when our focus should be on Christ. You remember last week we talked about uh, Paul's warning against plausible arguments, as he called them, and how the, the context of that suggested that Paul was referring to false teachers uh, and false teaching that came from within the church. 
and we mentioned some of those, Prosperity Gospel and, and Grace Movement, and there were three or four others that were false teachers residing within the church. Here, Paul seems to be referring to teaching that comes primarily, though not necessarily, but primarily from outside the church. And I say not necessarily from outside the church because Paul uses a pun here, but it's a Greek pun, so none of us get it, and it's not very funny. (laughs) But the word that Paul uses and is translated as take captive is only two letters different from the word synagogue. Ah, see? So Paul kind of sends this warning shot here, this big red flag, that some of the philosophies or traditions of men to which he is so adamantly opposed, some of these false teachings probably come from Judaism. Or at least certain Jewish teachers who were popular at the time. And and many people considered Christianity to be just a kind of a sect or a branch of Judaism at the time anyway. We're going to kind of pick up more on that theme next week when Al takes over. But in general, Paul is speaking to the many and varied belief systems and worldviews that existed in the region at the time, and there were plenty. Here's, here's just a, a quick look at a couple of them. Gnosticism, for example, which has been around from, well, the Garden of Eden and continues to carry forward to this day. But Gnosticism says that faith comes through knowledge, which is often hidden or secret. Secret or hidden knowledge. And it takes work on your part to gain entrance into this secret knowledge. It was full of mystery. It's no wonder then that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses the word mystery many times. But he gave it a completely different meaning. You want to know the mystery? It's Christ. It's Christ in you. It's Christ to Jew and Gentile. It's Christ to all ethnics, races, and religions. He's available to everybody, but you've got to do it his way. That's the mystery. The mystery comes from Christ, not from some arcane buried ancient document. Well, there was a growing ascetic movement at the time, too. Just the idea of self-denial. A person who renounced material comforts to reach a higher level of spirituality. This led to what we know as the monastic movement, monks and monasteries, desert dwellers, um, people who, who renounced all material possession and moved out into a cave so they could be closer to God. They wanted solitude and and physical denial. That led them to an increased spirituality. Hard to find a verse that supports that specifically. So that's one of those traditions of men, those philosophies that came about. There was a philosophy of dualism. Dualism taught that all matter was evil and only the spirit was good, which led to all kinds of weird and interesting sub-philosophies and understandings. It got very complicated and, frankly, I think a bit tedious trying to understand it all. But it's often represented by the question or the idea of why is there evil in the world if creation was made by a holy and good God? So that they struggled with the idea of good and evil, and somehow that led them to the concept of dualism. It's, it's the flesh that's bad. The spirit is good. Now, the question Why is there evil in the world? If it was created by a holy and good God, that's a fair question. That's a valid question. But then it kind of started there and wandered off into this philosophical system that ultimately led people away from God. It became a bad system. 
There's apparently a practice of angel worship going on, which Paul addresses in later texts, but the angel worship and, and the, the multiple pagan religions that were available in the society at that time. Angel worship was likely an element within Judaism, um, but it kind of sprang more from rabbinical tradition than anything that was scripture-based. And maybe this was the point of the pun that Paul used earlier, kind of pointing out things coming from the Jewish faith. But all of these philosophies are present, as well as all the normal local, regional gods and goddesses and whatever. So Paul is writing this to Jews and Gentiles, believers in this early church, who were perhaps being confused or potentially led astray by these many false teachings. And he makes it clear what they're up against. These philosophies will lead you away from Christ. Human traditions, when raised to the same level of importance as Scripture, in some cases they're considered even more important than Scripture, they're intended to deceive you. They're intended to lead you away from Christ. They're intended to lead you away from truth. In fact, he says these false teachings are based on or stem from the elemental spirits of the world. Now, the, the Greek word that here that's used for elemental spirits is also sometimes translated as fundamental principles. And that's often used in connection with paganism. One of the quotes they found is the fundamental elements of pagan religion. So it's, it's the, the, the source of pagan religion. And in Paul's day, that same Greek term was widely used to refer to spirits found in Persian texts, Persian, Persian spiritual texts. It was used in astrological documents. It was even used in some Jewish texts. So when Paul refers to the elemental spirits of the world, it seems likely he's talking about demonic spirits. That's the source of all of these other lies. And these elemental spirits are probably what he means when he refers to rule and authority later. But Paul says it even more plainly. If you remember in 1 Timothy, he refers to the deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. And, and their sole purpose is to lead people away from the truth of God's word, believer and unbeliever alike. They'll lead anybody astray to keep them away from truth. So Paul says here, they're trying to get you to believe in other things, things not according to Christ. So the goal of Satan and his ilk, his little demon philosophers, his army of false teachers, is to lead us away from God's truth. It's seduce us into, ter- into error. By making us believe that we have spirituality, making us believe that we're working towards some kind of spiritual or philosophical enlightenment, which in reality, he says, has the ultimate effect of making us captive to the lie. Convincing us that we have the fullness of truth or or perception, but actually keeping us away from the source of truth. He goes on. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says so much in so few words. But here we go again. We talked about this last week. Paul proclaims, he preaches, and then he breaks it down and teaches so that we understand what he's saying. 
So Paul is, is preaching, he's proclaiming truth and teaching how we should apply it. He's just warned them. He's proclaimed in no uncertain terms to stay away from bad philosophy and, and human traditions, anything that goes against God's revealed wisdom. And then he explains it some more here. He says, you don't, you don't need to search after all this hidden knowledge. You don't need to follow the traditions of men or, or what they tell you. And here's why. And then he lays out another kind of amazing argument to support or explain his proclamation. He says, because in Christ, you don't need to do all those other things, because in Christ, the whole fullness of God dwells. He's, he's complete. Jesus has all of God. Remember, Christ was the visible image of the invisible God, we learned. We, so we have seen, or they have seen, Jesus in the flesh. So he says, follow the God that came to be with us. Not some rabbi come lately trying to lead you astray. And not only has Christ been seen in the flesh, but he lived with us. He continues to live in us for those who have made him Lord, who have been filled with him. He's the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the ultimate. It's the supremacy of Christ. We're going back to our main theme. He's not on the same level as these other little poser, small G-gods that are out there. We're talking about a whole other thing here. In fact, they're going to have to answer to Christ someday. He'll sit in, in, in judge of everybody. So don't get caught up in all the man-made rules and how you should treat the flesh versus the spirit and what you need to do to tend to your soul. Those rules that people make up, they're virtually useless. Because your holiness, your righteousness, is not dependent on anything that you do. It's not dependent on anything that you don't do. Your works or lack thereof won't save you. Except for one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender to him as Lord of your life. He takes care of the rest. He helps you do the rest. He lives in you. In Christ you have been circumcised. We go back to the circumcision topic again. I mean, he's not talking about the in-the-flesh in the kind of circumcision we, we've talked about in, in other letters. Uh, actual physical circumcision, that was a, a visible sign of God's original covenant with the Israelites. Paul says that doesn't really apply to us anymore because we're now circumcised in the Spirit. And, and I think Paul feels compelled to bring this up because he's still battling against that Jewish teaching that says, in order for you to be truly Christian, you have to become a Jew first which means you have to be circumcised. So I, again, I think this, this circumcision part was kind of what Paul alluded to with that pun earlier, going against those Jewish teachers who were still saying you've got to be circumcised. When in fact, we, we've cut off allegiance to the flesh and to the world because we've now pledged allegiance and obedience to Christ. The circumcision is internal, it's spiritual, it's the heart. And then from there, Paul makes a really interesting connection to baptism. Whereas circumcision was a visible marker of the covenant, for anybody who cared to see, I guess, it displayed or symbolized an allegiance to God. In a similar way, baptism is also a visible indicator of our newfound obedience to Christ. We, we've, we've put away our allegiance, whether we acknowledged it or not. We, we put away our allegiance to the world. We put it away. And, we, and through baptism, we publicly declare our allegiance to Christ. We switch teams. 
And even the physical act of baptism is highly symbolic. We go under the water for a baptism. We believe in baptism by immersion. Uh, I think we probably stop short of saying it's the only one that counts, and it doesn't have to be in this church. Um, but we do believe in baptism by immersion. To get the full burial metaphor, submersion, immersion makes the most sense. You know, when you bury a body, we don't sprinkle dirt on it. We pretty much fill the hole in. So immersion seems to make the most sense for baptism. But we go underwater to symbolize, symbolize being buried with Christ. He died on our behalf. So we metaphorically follow in his steps. And then we're raised with him through faith in God. And this is not, again, not a generic faith in a generic God, but it's through faith in the powerful working of God, the one who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul keeps giving us these teaching moments along the way, uh, like he did in the first chapter, to give us this very specific set of data so we know exactly what he's talking about. We know exactly who the Jesus is he's talking about. We know exactly who the God is that he's talking about. He's trying to eliminate any possible confusion with Jesus and all of the other gods who are out there. He's giving us guideposts, kind of these, you know, Christian life bumper rails. Keep us in the right alley. And he's making sure we are committed to the one true God. And this all started off, this section started off with, don't be taken captive by these other philosophies. Don't be deluded by competing or even contradictory human traditions or, or false teachers from within the church. Because the truth is, not popular to say, not politically expedient, any teaching that does not completely align with biblical teaching is a lie. They are deceptions that emanate from the elemental spirits of the world. This is why Paul, in all his letters, devotes the first half of these letters to orthodoxy. Let's make sure we all understand and believe the right things. He's bent on teaching us truth so we, we can all more easily spot a lie when we see it. So if any teaching deviates to any meaningful degree from what we know from God's word, it's a lie. So all these competing beliefs and philosophies, even competing religions, according to the New Testament, they're doctrines of demons. Anything that leads us away from the truth of Christ. I understand it's a very bold statement to say that Christianity is exclusive. To suggest that it is not welcoming or affirming or tolerant. But that's only according to our modern, incorrect, though it may be, understanding of those terms. Christianity is completely inclusive to anybody who's willing to come to Christ on his terms. It's not popular. It's not easy to say that Jesus is the only way. That's likely why 70% of Christians say there are other paths, because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings but we're allowing human tradition and philosophy to lead us away from truth. And on the whole today, when we use words like welcoming and affirming and tolerant, especially in any kind of spiritual context, we typically mean you're welcome to worship here with us. You're, you're free to believe pretty much anything you want to believe. We welcome that. You can pick and choose which parts of Scripture are meaningful for your life. We affirm that. And feel free to discount or ignore or flat-out condemn anything that doesn't suit you. We encourage. We tolerate that. 
That's welcoming and affirming. And really, it seems more to me like a spiritual truce has been called. You know, we just want you to come to our church, and we won't call out your sin as long as you don't call out ours. I mean, after all, we're worshiping together. But if we're not obeying the God who created us, if we're not obeying his revealed word to us, then what exactly are we worshiping? We're basically relegating the revered gathering of the saints to nothing more than a well-groomed, therapeutic social hour disguised as a church. We put on our cloak of righteousness so we look Christian, but we deny the central tenets of the faith, and our lives remain unchanged. We all feel better for a while. We feel welcomed and affirmed and tolerated, having gathered together in the general vicinity of a cross without ever being called to consider how our beliefs and our behaviors grieve the one who hung on that cross. You can see why this is not popular. I suspect that Paul was having the very same issues in his day. When the, the pseudo-preachers and the, and the cult leaders, the local gurus, they were offering whatever feel-good form of spirituality or easy believism they offered. I mean, it cost the, their followers next to nothing, and it accomplished even less. I suspect Paul was dealing with it then, but he, he reminds the church of why this is important. He reminds them of their real spiritual status. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he follows up this argument here, coming out and hitting kind of hard. This, this, is, this is pretty hard. It's almost like he's going through this, these previous verses and saying, okay, all these others are, are false teachers and they're false teaching and people are following them, and, but lest you start feeling too super spiritual yourself, lest you start feeling spiritually superior to these unbelieving friends and neighbors, unless you start shaming them or looking down on those people following false teaching, remember, all of you, remember, all of us, we were once dead in our own trespasses and sins. But God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven our sins. Now, if this sounds vaguely familiar to you at this point, it's because Paul has already said the same thing back in chapter 1. He said, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We need to be reminded. We need to be reminded. Paul actually kind of softens his approach here a little bit between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 2, he says, you were spiritually dead from your sins. And chapter 1 says, you were alienated and hostile. You were doing evil deeds. You were horrible people. You were God's enemy, but his point is the same. In times past, you who are now strong, faithful believers, you were sinners against God. You were being ruled by the desires of your flesh. You were dead, but God has made us alive together with him. He's just saying that, that, 
God, through the completed work of Christ, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this triune God offers forgiveness for all of our trespasses, all of our sins, which transfers us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's the only difference between us and them. Paul wants us to grasp the big idea here. You were sinners against God, but he has forgiven you. Even though you have a long history of crimes and misdemeanors and of sinning against God, the truth is, in God's court where he sits in judgment, you all have a rather extensive rap sheet. And Paul uses some legal jargon here. So God, as the judge, he looks at our rap sheet, and then he cancels the sin. He cancels the transgression. He forgives the sin. He cancels the debt that stood against us. The Greek word translated here as record of debt was understood at that time as meaning a note of indebtedness. It's like an IOU. A holy and just God who, was created, who created us to live in communion with him asks us to live in obedience to him, and every time we fail to live in obedience, we sin. We add to our record our indebtedness. And some of us have relatively short lists of transgressions. And some of us, if our sins were printed out, would take out a small forest. We've all sinned, we all continue to sin, but God is holy and just. And he has every reason, every right to deny us communion with himself. By rights, we should be banished from God and have the key thrown away, and yet, he offers us forgiveness. He offers to cancel our record of debt, but it required a sacrifice. So our holy and just God, who is also good and loving, he provided the means of sacrifice for us. The death of his son, Jesus Christ. And I really like this imagery here, the, the, this notice of cancellation being nailed to the cross. And maybe it's just because I'm listening to a podcast about Martin Luther right now. You know, he, he, he listed out his problems with the Pope and the church, and then he nailed them to the door of the church. But that was a common way of posting public notices. That's how people could see. It was a public pronouncement. So at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, God made public for all to see the mystery that had been hidden. That salvation was now available to everyone. That we're no longer, we no longer have to be in debt due to our sin. The sacrifice of Christ wiped our record clean. You notice the effect of this public nailing of our canceled debt. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He kind of upset the apple cart for the elemental spirits of the world. I kind of suspect that Satan and his little frat brothers were, were likely having a big old we beat Jesus party. Only to find out they'd played right into God's hands. They fulfilled his plan. And they were put to shame. Just consider that for a minute. We're forgiven. They're put to shame. Their short-lived thrill of victory was quickly snatched away by the realization of the agony of defeat. But we need to know, Paul needed the church to know, he needs us to know that the enemy has not given up. 
I mean, Satan knows he's ultimately defeated, which seems like maybe it makes him work even harder to mess up as much of God's plan now before his defeat comes. Hence, we get Paul's persistent and stern warning about false teachers and philosophies and human traditions. And he continues to give us this ongoing encouragement to walk in a worthy manner. I mean, the short story is, Jesus died so that we can live. God wins. And we benefit. Now, it seems like that ought to be an abundance of joy in that fact alone. Let's pray. Lord, we have such a wonderful story to tell. Um, and, and we admit it's easy to get caught up in our daily lives and the, the challenges and pressures and, and all the things that we have to deal with uh, that can so easily distract us away from this, this great, eternal, timeless story of your love for us. So I pray as we leave here uh, this morning and we go out into the work week and w- whatever this, the circumstances and the situation is, if it's, if it's work stress or, or family stress or financial stress, Lord, I pray that we just get better at, at turning to you relying on your storehouse of knowledge and wisdom. Lord, that we trust that you have our circumstances in mind. As we sang earlier, you are God of the present tense. You are God of our human events. You are still the God who created us. You're still the God who looks after us and sustains us. And Lord, I pray that we find, get better at finding those, those moments of joy and that those moments could turn into hours of joy and days of joy so that we can abound in thanksgiving regardless of our circumstances. As the New Testament indicates over and over and over, rejoice in all things. I just pray that we get better at that, that we become better ambassadors, better, better disciples, better representatives of the love of Christ in our community. We continue to shine the light that points to Jesus, not because of how great we are because we're not but we want to share with people how great you are how forgiving you are how you give us so much more than we deserve we thank you for your overwhelming love for us amen